0: Father God, we thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word, uh, to have it impact us. We ask you open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So salvation is nearer and love your neighbor. This passage breaks down into these two neat chunks. The first verses 8 to 10 are about this concern for fulfilling the law out of love for your neighbor. And then we get verses eleven through fourteen, which give us the reason for this fulfillment in love and it 's because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed that we 're supposed to be doing this. These two phrases "Love your neighbor" and salvation is near" can be thought of as the kind of the key phrases to unlocking this second half of Romans chapter thirteen. Each of them drills down to what Paul is saying in greater detail and, each of them contain a key word that can trip us up if we're not careful and when we need to learn how to identify and handle correctly in order to handle the passage correctly. So for our first chunk, we have verses 8 through 10. That word is neighbor because that word shows up a lot in Scripture and it's not quite as simple to handle as we would like it to be. It can mean a few things, so it's worth engaging. First, we could take neighbor to mean anyone. All people on Earth are neighbors on the planet. It's a sort of a weirdly familiar way to use that term, but that might be the point to treat anyone you meet with the same decency you would someone you live next to, you live close to. These are your geographically far neighbors or your your global neighbors, maybe. But then then we have this second possible meaning, the idea of the someone who lives close to you, the plainest reading of the word neighbor what we'd assume people meant if they talked about a neighbor in any other context. If someone told you, my neighbors put up the best Christmas lights last year, you wouldn't assume that everyone in the world put up the best Christmas lights last year. You'd go straight to assuming they're talking about their, global, or their local neighbors rather than their global neighbors. But we can't stop there because the term is yet more possibilities. Because when the Hebrews received these laws their neighbors were presumed to be their co-religionists, the other Jews. These were laws given to the ancient Israelites to worship, or to, to, uh, to love, rather, other Israelites as part of their worship of God. And since God's covenant extended to everyone, or rather is extended to everyone now since Christ died and rose again, inviting us all to that new boon of forgiveness, that broader family of God, that makes things a little more complicated for us. So the Hindu family across the road, for example, might not quite be our neighbor in the same way that the Baptist missionaries in India are. And it's worth understanding what we mean when we read the word here. So now we have our global neighbors and our local neighbors and our spiritual neighbors who is Paul referring to. So this, this neighbor language first comes out of Leviticus, back in the Old Testament, penned by Moses. And when Moses was writing the commands from God, he leaves little room about what kind of neighbors he meant when he was initially chiseling this out on the tablets. This comes from Leviticus nineteen seventeen to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see the synonyms that God, through Moses, uses for neighbor here, brother, sons of your people. The Leviticus neighbor is, to, is a command to love their fellow Israelites. Now it extends a little bit further, a few verses down in Leviticus 19.34. We get these words. The foreigner residing among you Must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So now we are told that this neighbor category can be extended to non Jews who live among the Jews. That is, the local neighborhood. The people that were close to you were to be treated as if they were the sons of your own people. Now, of course, we, of course, we can't stop at Leviticus if we are uh, investigating who our neighbor is supposed to be. This question is famously put directly to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, starting at verse 25, where an expert in the law comes up to Jesus and asks him to explain who his neighbor is. Christ's response is the story of the Good Samaritan, and so this doesn't become a sermon within a sermon. I'll recap that, uh, recap that story very quickly. A man is traveling... He's beaten and robbed. His countrymen, who might be thought of as his neighbors usually, leave him to die. A foreigner who is definitely not his neighbor in the way the Jews understand it, comes to his rescue and helps him. Christ asks the expert in the law, who was the neighbor to this man? And the expert in the law realizes that extending compassion and decency is the key to the neighbor law. So when God says love your neighbor, it doesn't just mean Find your neighbor, show love to them. Inside it also contains this command that you can extend compassion and decency to a stranger and then they become your neighbor. So Moses was talking about immediate neighbors and that was true and good. And Christ extends that logic to include potentially anyone on a global level and that's also true and good. And Paul seems to be tapping into both these ideas here at the same time. When he pens our verses for study today, we'll see that. And let's get into stepping through the passage so you can see what I mean. Back in verse 8 of chapter 13. Let no debt remain outstanding. Hang on. I think we're using the ESV there, but my reading here is coming from the, uh, the NIV. So it's pretty much the same. I'll let you know if we uh, hit a snag. Uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another, who loves another has fulfilled the law. So when Paul uses these, this term one another, he's talking about the church relating to itself, the members of the church showing love to each other. It's how its members interact with each other. Paul's first interest here is to encourage the Roman church to show their love between their members, their local spiritual neighbors. But just in case the reader might get the impression that their love, first owed to God and then to their fellow believers, does not also extend outside the church, Paul proceeds to globalize this neighbor in verses 9 to 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I think you'd have a hard time making the argument that those commandments can be confined to your relationship with your people at church. That would mean that a born-again believer would be free to murder, steal from, and sleep with anyone who is outside of their immediate church family, which would certainly be a novel approach to the gospel. Um, I don't think I need to spend a long time explaining why that one doesn't fly. So when Paul talks here about loving our neighbors, we have to take him to mean the church community neighbors, our fellow believers, but not to diminish our obligation to extend our love and decency to those outside the church and outside our immediate community. So now that we've taken the time to dissect that term, we can look at what Paul is actually saying in these verses. He first uses this warning about outstanding debt as a kind of a bridge to talk about love fulfilling the law. And the love fulfilling the law bit seems like what he really wants to get to. But we should give this warning some weight first. Historically, Christians have kind of been bad around the idea of debt and understanding it. Not individually, but conceptually. They've struggled to apply best these warnings in scripture, we get this warning against, uh, against getting into debt and also Jesus chasing out the moneylenders from the temple, for example. He tells you to give without expecting anything in return. The Old Testament forbids the charging of interest with loans. And so I know some folks today who extend these principles into their actions today in that they actually believe it is a sin to be involved in an interest-paying loan. I think it's very easy to have that belief if you own your home outright, or if you got to pay your student payments up front. This even led to one of the most pernicious and long-lasting stereotypes in history, the Shylock, the Jewish moneylender. Back in the medieval era, Christians were not allowed to charge interest to other Christians, and Jews were not allowed to charge interest to other Jews. doesn't take a genius to exploit that situation, So Christians would take loans from Jews. Sometimes those loans would go bad. Both parties would become bitter at each other. So this is twisting God's word. We can see that fairly obviously looking back now. We know that God is the God of Jews and Gentiles alike, that he has no interest in causing friction between these two groups. This warning against debts is not written through all of Scripture because God hates the modern banking system. It's because long-standing debt can very easily become acrimonious. It can cause uh, damage in a relationship between people. And a long-standing debt with accumulating interest can become punitive and painful for everyone involved. If you imagine this happening within members of the same church community, you can easily see the kind of uh, pain and split that it can cause. But anyone who signed a mortgage document detailing 30 years of periodic payments to come can know how emotionally intense Debt can be. So, can Christians in good conscience lend money to other Christians? I think yes, they can, keeping in mind that the person that they are lending to is their neighbor, and as verse 10 told us, love does no harm to your neighbor. Done right, lending is helpful to everyone involved. Paul's advice here is not do not make loans so much as do not let them remain outstanding, do not do them wrong. If the debtor and the creditor treat each other with compassion and decency, then there should be no problem here because love is the fulfillment of the law. All these commandments against adultery, murder, theft, and covetousness, Paul does like Jesus did and links them all intimately as expressions of love. This bears further investigation because it's possible to take this line, love is the fulfillment of the law, And either give it no weight or the wrong kind of weight. Now, when I say the wrong kind of weight, I mean you could read this idea that love is the fulfillment of law and run way off course with it. You could say, if I love someone else's spouse, but I really love them, it doesn't count as adultery because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, plainly, that's an excuse. Firstly, it pays no mind to the harm it will likely do to other people involved and Secondly, it sacrifices God's clear intentions for love and intimacy for its own selfish desire. That's to give the command a bad or improper weight. That's weighing it all on the love but missing the does no harm. But it's also possible to fail to give this command enough real weight to fly over it and just sort of let it slide. So for another example... Most Christian folks would agree that lying is a sin. I don't think I'm going out on a limb with that one. The Ninth Commandment seems to pretty much expressly forbid it, for example. But there are, right now, a number of undercover police officers lying their way into the inner circles of drug-dealing bikies and gangs. Many of these cops are Christian. They do what they do out of a love for justice and for the decent, compassionate people they are trying to protect. Are they sinning? I've never seen a Christian lobby group rail against undercover police officers and the work they do. I think it's a lot like the Hebrew midwives in Exodus who lied rather than hand over these infants for execution. These are men and women who are acting in a way that is deceptive but striving towards love as the ideal. Now, you may disagree with me on that specific example. If you do, I would love to talk about it after. Um, but The point is, and Paul's clear point, is that love is to be our guiding principle in fulfilling God's requirements of us. The old Pharisaic way that Paul operated about fulfilling the words of the letter of the law like a prescription for forgiveness is flawed. The commandments and all the laws were given to us on the pretext that we would execute them out of a sense of love for one another. And since we owe God infinitely for the sacrifice of his son on the cross to save us, we are obliged and privileged to live out our lives and to live out that debt to one another as sons and daughters of God. We're obliged to live out that debt to one another as representatives of God. We show our love and obedience to him by extending that compassion and decency to one another. So now we're up to the second chunk, and the term we need to get right for this chunk of the, uh, well, of the half chapter, is salvation, because it's such a powerful, significant term in its primary meaning that we can sometimes lose sight of how it can otherwise be used. Salvation is the state of being saved, and when we say it, we usually mean saved from sin and death by the redeeming grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the strongest meaning that salvation has and the one that we usually invoke when we're reading it from scripture. But that's not the only way the word is used. The best example might be Philippians 2.12, which goes like this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, folks who are only equipped to use the word salvation one way will find this verse will drive them insane because it sounds an awful lot like a works-based gospel. That would be bad. That would throw a spanner in the works of all the theology that we've built in our church. And it's kind of funny to see some translators hit this passage and squirm trying to get around it. Maybe it means work out the results of your salvation or work out of respect of your salvation or maybe it means if you don't work hard enough you might lose your salvation really the answer is much simpler paul didn't intend every reading of the word salvation to mean salvation from sin and death in the context of philippians it's about conflict resolution they need salvation from that acrimony from that fighting with one another It's about conflict resolution, about the body of believers pulling together and figuring out their problem. Paul's not there to adjudicate their disagreement or to save them from each other, so he encourages them to have a Christ-like attitude and to work out their own salvation from this bickering with genuine concern for the church and for one another. And so we're careful not to make a similar mistake when it comes to verse 11 in our chapter 13 of Romans. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. How can our salvation be nearer now than when we first believed? When you believe, you are saved, right? That was the deal we were sold. Is there some kind of delay for postage? Is there a cooling off period? If I confess my belief and get hit by a truck, am I going to be standing awkwardly by the gates of heaven assuring the angels that I swear it's on its way? (laughs) Just give me a couple more minutes. Clearly not. Clearly Paul is referring to the salvation, or not referring to the salvation of our souls from sin and death. We know we are secure in that salvation because that is a gift given by God. It's a gift given by God and not one earned or dependent on our subsequent actions. This is not an egg and spoon race for your soul. You can't trip and break your salvation halfway there. But Paul is using salvation here in the sense that it's often used in the Old Testament as a deliverance from all the things that interfere with God's children living in his blessing and presence. This is a concept developed over time for the Jewish people. They thought they had it when they were delivered from Egypt into the promised land, but they soon learned that a free Israel was very prone to making its own problems through idolatry and through infighting. Clearly, they weren't in that full salvation yet. So salvation started to seem like something bigger than just having their own patch of land. And Isaiah and Ezekiel, these great prophets, paint a picture of a new Jerusalem, a transformed earth, one that is wholly remade to accommodate God's salvation which is just too grand, too big, too much to fit into a world warped by sin. And we get this image repeated in Revelation. We've seen it in our recent series, refined by John's vision of what is to come. And this is what is sometimes called the now and not yet salvation. Much in the same way that the kingdom of God has a now and not yet aspect. The kingdom of God is both now in that his gospel goes out with the power of the spirit and we live in service of the king. But also not yet in that the king himself has not returned to establish his final everlasting rule. So much in the same way our salvation is now in that we are assuredly saved from hell, saved from sin and death and that final sting. But also not yet in that everything that comes between us and God has not yet been swept away. There is still physical death and suffering in the world. There are plagues and tragedies, hatred and blasphemy against our God. The enemy and his fallen angels still operate in the world and make war on the church. And not least of all, each of us is still surrounded by external temptations to sin and the internal drive to yield to those temptations that we call the flesh flesh that stretches us painfully out towards those temptations whenever they come within reach. That salvation will only come when the king comes. When the kingdom comes. This is why we pray, come Lord Jesus. And it's why we pray, your kingdom come. So when Paul says, the hour has already come to wake up because our salvation is nearer now, Than when you first believe. This isn't a cry of urgency, as if the Roman church 2,000 years ago needed to make sure the place was tidy in case Jesus turned up the next day. It's just about time. There are no more prophets or judges to wait for. The 400 years of silence the Jews had lived through, waiting for God to speak to them, was over. He spoke to them in the revelation of His Son. And this new church, this fusion of Jews and Gentiles, has no more milestones or eras to wait for. Jesus has already come. He took away the sins of the world by his death and resurrection. The kingdom is both now and also on its way. And so as much as we turn our eyes to the future, awaiting that fulfillment, we have a duty in that kingdom now. And we have been equipped for that duty by our salvation now. Verse 12 says this. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The night is nearly over. The day is almost coming. This comes to us from a culture where daylight was at a premium. If you didn't get all your work done in one day, you couldn't just work late to get the rest of it done. It was dark, and running oil lamps was expensive, not something everyone had an option to do. For that matter, and much like we kind of experience here, the middle of the day becomes oppressively hot. So the best part of your work is done before it gets to its hottest. So when that light of dawn came, that was the time to get up. As soon as the darkness begins melting away, that was the hour to rise and get stuck into the job. As soon as the sun had risen, that was the time to work. Now, the light-dark imagery is fairly well-worn territory as far as biblical pictures go, and Paul leans on it here again to good effect. As soon as God's son had risen from the grave... That was the cue for believers to go to work. Not because we have a quota to fill or because we risk a surprise inspection from the returned Christ if we haven't done enough. Paul's emphasis here is merely on the fact that we are children of God. This is just what we do. We serve God and we serve him out of love for one another. We love as a fulfillment of the law. We fulfill the law through love Because the sun has risen, it's time, and it's what we do. Now these deeds of darkness, and Paul's examples here are typical Roman carousing and sexual license, but you can extend them to any worldly, fleshly pursuit. These deeds are things that people do before the sun rises, and things that believers might have done before they met God. Interestingly, the fact that these actions are sinful barely comes into play here. Barely seems to enter Paul's mind as he writes these words. They are, of course, and he does deal with this in many other places in his writings. But these words are not about the believers' struggle against evil temptations. He deals with that in other places. This is more just about the fact that the time for those deeds has passed. We should have moved on by now. They are obsolete. The Christian who indulges in those vices is living in the spiritual past. They've been saved by the power of God. They've been given the armor of light, this new arrangement suitable for the kind of person that God has turned them into and the day that they are now stepping into. Living in that old, ratty spiritual darkness is distressing, it's boring and sad. The world has moved on towards the kingdom of God, and Christians should be moving on with it. I used to work at the Combsley Hotel. If you're familiar with that establishment, then shame on you. I had to make a living. What's your excuse? Um, It's not that bad. It's It's a typical Aussie pub club. There's drinking, there's karaoke, there's the kind of things you'd expect. It's not exactly a Christian establishment, but it's not quite the devil's armpit. So it was a decent halfway. And there's certain types that roll in. There's the young women who show up in big packs to have fun together. They tolerate the young men so that they can coerce them into dancing. The young men tolerate dancing so they can be around the young women there's these groups that you can predict like this. Those two are all dolled up. Meanwhile, there are the fluorescent tradies sitting in a big cluster for their after-work drinks, spattered in concrete and paint. And the locals who have been coming for 20 years, and it's just sort of a regular occasion for them now. And then there are the folks who should know better. The 40- or 50-year-old guy who turns up and tries to crack jokes while he's drunk to the horrified hen's night party in the corner, or otherwise makes a fool of himself. He'll shimmy out onto the dance floor and make everyone around him feel very awkward as he busts out his solo edition of the Macarena. He's not trying to hurt anyone, he's just trying to have fun. But he hasn't grasped that the time for this stuff, for him, is over. He's not 25 and in his prime anymore. He might have been the life of the party like that once, but now it's just kind of sad to watch. It's like the guy who was the sporty superstar in high school and then lives the rest of his life in reflection of how good he used to be on the team back in the day. We know there's a time for these things, but acting out of time is embarrassing for everyone involved. And Paul says in verses 13 and 14, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What came before the deeds of the flesh, the the desires of the flesh and the deeds of darkness, it's so inferior that's just how people kill time until they meet God and are saved. It's embarrassing and unfitting for a follower of God to be slumming around like that. We don't have to act lovingly and in a Christ-like way. We get to act lovingly in a Christ-like way. It's not a burden that's dropped on us. It's a new, better, more satisfying way to live. And one that doesn't leave us pining for the past, but anticipating the future glory with eager joy. We get to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. We get to take up that mantle of righteousness and live good, loving, fulfilling lives, free from the predatory crawl of time and the stunting, painful constraint of death. It's a better life that we are given. One more, our connection to God and to one another is not action through sterile commands, or restrictions on behavior, but made full through the principle of love. And that's more reward than obligation. And it's about time we lived like that. So let's pray. Father God, you furnish our lives with opportunity to love and be loved and we come before you now to ask that you guide us in that first and deepest pursuit to love one another. Help us not to take this as a, just a soppy injunction to niceness, but as a life-changing opportunity to live clothed in the likeness of your Son. And wherever the deeds of darkness may persist in our lives, Lord, throw open the curtains by the power of your Spirit. The sun has risen. And we now live for him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.